This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey guys, Ryan here. The Somewhere in the Skies podcast is a labor of love every week. And with that comes many different costs to keep the show running. That's where our Patreon campaign comes in. You give what you think the show is worth. There's different rewards available all the time, including shoutouts on the show, early editions of main episodes, bonus episodes and content, and very soon, monthly patron hangouts, where we sit back and chat all things UFOs. So I hope you'll consider becoming a Patreon subscriber today. To learn more and to join, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support and keep looking up. For many who claim alien abductions, it's a lonely road in trying to understand what has happened. Your loved ones, your friends, and those around you may not even believe you. Throughout my years of research and interviewing many claimed abductees or experiencers, it's often most difficult when it comes to a significant other supporting their partner's incredible claims. In fact, many times it can make or break a relationship. But what happens when it's more than one claimed abduction? And what happens when your significant other was there when more than one of these experiences occurred? These are the abductions of Denise Stoner. I look over at Ed, and he's frozen to the steering wheel. I can't get his attention whatsoever. He's just frozen. They are bringing me away and up, up into the craft. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. It was August 13, 1982, Colorado. Denise Stoner, along with her husband Ed and their teenage daughter, were on their way to a vacation retreat at the Grace Acre Ranch just outside of Denver. 
They had arranged to meet Stoner's parents as well as family friends at the retreat, with all of them going ahead of the Stoners. They expected to arrive there around 8.30 p.m., but Denise, her husband Ed, and their daughter would ultimately arrive much later than that. They had left Denver at around 5 p.m., and immediately took to the back roads in order to escape the rush hour traffic. By 6.30, they had arrived at Kenosha Pass, which not only gave Ed a chance to pull over and stretch his legs, but also offered fantastic views of the South Park Valley below. It was after Ed restarted the car and set off down Kenosha Pass that the evening took a drastic turn. While Stoner and Ed chatted as they drove toward Jefferson, their daughter slept in the back seat. It was as they passed through Jefferson that Stoner noticed two yellow-white lights in the sky. They appeared to be heading in their direction. Eventually, the lights were directly over the top of the car. Then, without warning, the car suddenly moved sideways off the road and into the desert surroundings. Stoner would recall. It was as if the car was being dragged by some kind of invisible rope. We could do nothing at all to resist the pull. All the while, the lights remained directly overhead. The next thing the family remembered was being out of the valley entirely, driving toward Trout Creek Pass. It felt like only seconds had passed since we were pulled off the road. But it was no longer daylight. It was dark out. And now almost 11 p.m. Ed quickly calculated that they had covered almost 40 miles with no memory of what had happened, and they had lost almost four hours. Even stranger, despite them being 40 miles from their previous location when the lights had arrived, the car's odometer had not registered those miles. It was as if we'd been picked up and placed 40 miles down the road and set back on our way. The stoners couldn't help an unsettling feeling running through them as they continued on to the retreat 90 minutes late and with no idea why. By the time they arrived at their destination, it was only 15 minutes before midnight. Stoner's parents and the family friends were at the roadside of the retreat, a mixture of anxiety and relief on their faces. They would tell them that they were contemplating calling the police and filing a missing persons report. We decided we had no other option but to tell our worried family exactly what had happened. Although they initially thought this could have been some sort of elaborate prank, the rest of the family and family friends realized that whatever had happened, it had truly terrified and mystified the stoners. Following the weekend away, the stoners returned home to Denver. I contemplated that night in my mind for many years, coming to no conclusions as to what happened during that missing time with my family. It wouldn't be until almost three decades later until Stoner spoke of that night again. She would meet a woman by the name of Kathleen Martin, who would ultimately change Denise's life forever. Kathleen Martin had earned a degree in social work from the University of New Hampshire. She also participated in graduate studies in education while working as a teacher and education services coordinator. 
She also spent time volunteering at the New Hampshire State Psychiatric Hospital. Martin was a dedicated individual, a lifelong learner, even while she passed on her knowledge to others. She would spend the next 15 years in the education system. And while her work as an educator always shone bright, and she was well known for it, Martin was also known for something else. She was the niece of Betty Hill, the wife of Barney Hill. This married couple would arguably not only be some of the first individuals to have claimed to have had a close encounter with a UFO, but also to have been abducted by the supposed non-human pilots of the UFO. Here is Martin summarizing the initial close encounter of her aunt and uncle that harrowing night in 1961. Betty had a vacation from her job as a social worker for the state of New Hampshire. Barney worked for the post office. Neither believed in UFO reality at that time. They had never read a book on the topic. They took a brief vacation to Niagara Falls on to Toronto, onto Montreal, and they were driving home through the White Mountains of New Hampshire on September 19, 1961, when they had uh, a close encounter with a UFO. It came so close that it was within 100 feet, estimated by them, of their location. Uh, Barney got out of the car with a his binoculars, he looked up at it, and according to the Air Force report and the report that they made to the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, very shortly thereafter, they observed a craft that was approximately 100 feet above them. It was extremely large. They told the Air Force that it was as large as a dinner plate at arm's length. This was very close to them. It was observed by at least a dozen additional people. It was on radar on the Air Force's two radar stations, and a follow-up study by the Air Force stated that this was a bona fide sighting. Eventually, it would be revealed that both Betty and Barney Hill believed that they had suffered missing time during this event, and that they had been kidnapped by something non-human that night. Naturally, the story of this interracial couple in the 60s drew a lot of attention when it was leaked to the public, and it became one of the most well-documented, investigated, and most famous alien abduction cases in UFO history. Martin, having been a witness to the aftermath of the events as a child with her aunt and uncle, stood by their testimony. She would eventually become the foremost investigator on the incident and one of the leading researchers on the alien abduction phenomenon in general, even up until today. Martin and her husband had relocated from New Hampshire to Florida in 2009. Soon after, Martin began attending meetings for the local chapter of a civilian-run organization known as MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. There, she met State Section Director and Chief Investigator Denise Stoner. Apparently, the experience or experiences of Stoner had made a huge impact on her life, even without having any answers. It was through MUFON that she would attempt to find those answers, with the help of Martin. I asked Kathleen Martin if she would be willing to look into my case and perhaps find some answers to fill in the gaps of missing time my family and I had experienced. 
Stoner and Martin began a working relationship from that moment on. Martin agreed to investigate Stoner's incident, which would ultimately involve hypnotic regression of Stoner in order to attempt to unlock some of the memories that may have been pushed into the deepest corners of Stoner's mind. The first session would take place on July 7th of 2011. Martin would take Stoner back to the night of August 13th, 1982, when she and her family were driving down that darkened road in Colorado. She would soon recall the strange lights she had noticed in the sky coming toward them. Under hypnosis, Stoner stated, There were three big lights off in the valley. They're coming down to the valley ground. They don't look right. There are no roads out there. When Martin asked Stoner to describe the lights further, she responded, They are huge, bright and white. They're rotating slowly. They're attached to another object. They look like two plates surrounding the light. The lights were directly over the top of their vehicle. At this point, the car began to move sideways. Stoner instinctively looked into the back seat to see if her daughter was awake for the sudden movement, but she remained asleep. I'm now outside of the car. The lights are separating from the plates and are coming down to the ground. I can sense someone else there, but I couldn't see them. All I know is, I'm supposed to go into the center of the lights. Then, an already bizarre and unnerving situation took another drastic turn. There's this blob of lighted jelly. It's twice the size of my head. It's floating toward me. The plates are a craft of some sort. It's lowering to the ground... Now there's this black, obsidian-colored opening, this... this craft. It's shaped like an hourglass. I know I'm supposed to step into this opening, but I'm afraid. But I do. I step into it. As soon as I do, I'm sucked into it. And I'm in it. I'm inside the craft. Stoner then recalled that the jelly-like substance was now completely gone, and that she was in a room surrounded by slick, silver walls. The lighting inside the room was dim, and she couldn't see where it came from. As she looked around the room, she was startled when she noticed several figures in the room. As she moved toward them, she realized that, whatever they were, they were not human. They're gray. Small. They have huge, black, misty eyes. They have no clothes on. They're in a perfect line, shoulder to shoulder, staring straight ahead and not moving. Something tells me they are soldiers of some kind. As she looked on at these beings, another figure soon came from around a corner of a curve in the room and was heading toward her. It bent down to her level. It's much taller than the others. Its eyes are blinking vertically. It puts its face close to mine and it blinks, but its eyelids blink vertically. The eyes are yellow, tall, and narrow more to the side of its head than in front. It has no nose and a tiny red mouth. It has three long fingers and one thumb. Its body is oddly jointed and extremely thin. Around its fragile frame it wore a dark jacket that reached down to its legs. It has a stand-up collar like a priest wears. 
Its mouth doesn't move, but it's speaking to me. Not verbally. It's in my mind. Talking to me inside my head somehow. We have to go in. But I don't want to. I want to go back to my car. It tells me you can't go back until I do what I have to do. It was at this point in Stoner's session that she became very anxious and scared, and Martin opted to end the session. The next hypnotic regression would take place several months later, on October 26, 2011. However, before it would take place, Stoner informed Martin of several details she had managed to recall consciously since their last meeting. For example, she would claim that despite how terrifying the taller being was to her, she could sense it was highly intelligent. She had further recalled that when the car moved sideways, it was, in fact, lifted several feet from the ground. She also recalled passing by a nearby ranch when they went. She couldn't recall how or why she got out of the vehicle, but she was certain that her husband and daughter all remained inside. However, it was when Martin took Stoner back to where they had left off in their last session where some of the most remarkable recollections allegedly came to light. I'm following this being into the room as instructed. In this room, there are several other beings identical to this one. It's saying something to me again in my head. It wants me to get on the table in the middle of the room. They have to perform a test on me. I'm reluctant, but I do it. What happened next was invasive and highly traumatic. The being lifted the cuff off the jeans on Stoner's right ankle. The next thing she recalled was feeling a sting in her foot, like a long needle or wire had been directly inserted into her leg and into her vein. The being tells me that the wire will remain in place for a period of time and that it will be there so the ones on Earth will be able to recognize me. Following this, a strange instrument appeared from behind the being, and the being then used it to place something inside of Stoner's tear duct. It's like a little white bead. It's being put into my eye by some sort of metal pinchers with a point at the end. The being is telling me it will fall out in a few days. The being then took a diamond-shaped instrument and pushed it down on Stoner's abdomen. According to Stoner, when the instrument passed over where her ovaries were, it caused a burning sensation. I ask what the purpose of this test is for, and the being tells me that it is not for me to know, and that I am part of the whole. Stoner would also recall a strange 3D holographic type of technology that displayed pictures of Earth and other far-off planets. The being would also make her aware that they had visited her many times before, of which she had absolutely no memory of. Martin ended this session and picked up again on November 4th, 2011. During this session, Martin managed to extract some intricate descriptions of the craft itself by Stoner. I'm in a room with its own atmosphere. It feels like it wants to spin, but it's not. The room is almost in complete blackness apart from a pole that goes from the ceiling to the floor. There is a mechanical device wrapped around the pole and two arms that come out on each side. 
This device, it seems alive. It's in motion. I think it's operating the craft. Following this, the being took Stoner out of the strange and disorienting room. As soon as she left the room, she felt as if she had just left something that was pressurized. It was at this point that Stoner blacked out and found herself back in the vehicle with her family. But this wasn't the only experience Stoner had with missing time, as Martin would soon learn. Something happened to Stoner and her husband on the other side of the United States, almost a decade later. Martin would once again put Stoner under to attempt to retrieve the memories of an event that occurred on October 20th, 1991. On the day in question, Stoner and her husband, Ed, had spent the day diving in a lake in Florida and were traveling back to their motel, the Steamboat Dive Inn. It was a route that they had taken many times before and should see them arrive at their motel in a little over 15 minutes. After eating dinner, the Stoners called it a night and went to bed, looking forward to another day of diving in the morning. However, the night would bring with it another strange event. For reasons she couldn't explain, in the middle of the night, Stoner got out of bed, dressed, and made her way to their vehicle outside the motel. Although she wasn't entirely sure where she was going, and struggled to later recall exactly where she had been, she made her way to a very remote location. This is where the memory ended, and where the hypnosis session began. Stoner recalled heading away from the motel and down a lonely, dark road. She would eventually pull over at the roadside, on a little dirt road in between two trees. I can see an opening between the trees. There's a strange object there that I can't quite make out. It looks almost like the top of a water tower, but very low to the ground. She remained in the car, her attention drawn toward the two trees in front of her. Stoner slowly crept the car closer to this object to get a better look. The closer she got, the more she realized this was not a water tower or anything like that. There was a ramp stretching out from the opening, and at the top of the ramp, a tall figure. As Stoner peered upward at the tall being, two small gray figures emerged from the opening and headed straight towards her. With ease, they were able to remove Stoner from her car, taking her up the ramp and into the opening. And once again, she found herself in a strange room, although this time there was no table. It was simply an empty room, except for a odd-looking chair. I feel dazed, almost like a dreamy-type feeling. The small beings place me in this chair. The tall being is approaching me. I notice that there is something that resembles a staple gun almost, and it's attached to the chair. The tall being takes this device or gun and presses it against the side of my head. It feels... It feels like it's stapling me. With that, the two gray figures took her from the chair and proceeded to bring her back to her car. Then, things became even stranger as she recalled what she believed to have been the craft. 
It's dark all around me except for this gray diamond with rounded edges. Bright red lights on those edges. Whatever this is, it's spinning. Faster. Faster. It's taking off in the sky. It disappears. Next thing I remember, I'm on the side of the road in the car. I don't remember the ride home. All I remember is returning to the motel and climbing into the bed. But when I look at the pillowcase, there's blood on it. Incidentally, when this last detail is brought up to Martin during the regression, she did indeed examine the side of Stoner's head. And to her amazement and dismay, there was in fact a small staple-like scar where Stoner recalled the figure placing the device. And as it would soon turn out, Stoner wouldn't be the only one with a bizarre story being pieced together in her mind. These next memories would also involve her husband, Ed. Do you like stories of the strange, the weird, and the unexplained? Then we want you to check out Jim Harold's Campfire. The concept is pretty simple. Jim talks to regular people about strange stuff that happens to them. And yes, that includes UFOs, along with cryptids, ghosts, and head scratchers. He doesn't exaggerate or play a lot of spooky music, kind of like I'm doing right now. The stories speak for themselves. One's like a ghost story involving serial killer Ted Bundy, or the young man who encountered an eight-legged demon. Then there's the story of an alien abduction by what could be considered a reptilian. Now, not all the stories are horrifying. Some are actually pretty heartwarming like a visit from a past loved one, or a peaceful near-death experience. Regardless, these are true and fascinating stories told by ordinary people who've had extraordinary experiences. Tune in to Jim Harold's Campfire on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to Somewhere in the Skies. And remember, stay spooky. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
The stoners had planned to spend their final day diving, and after getting out of bed and eating breakfast at a nearby diner, they packed the equipment into the car and set out on their destination. However, as they approached a small farm on the roadside, things took an unsettling turn. At the very back of the barn on the farm, Stoner could see several oddly shaped objects. She quickly alerted Ed to these, asking what he thought they were. The closer they got to the barn, the objects appeared distinctly triangular shaped, and also appeared to have some kind of net-like covering over them. Ed responded that they were most likely chicken coops. Denise was not convinced, and asked that they go and take a closer look. Before they could, though, everything changed. Suddenly, instead of driving along the quiet road near the farmhouse, they found themselves near the interstate highway approaching Lake City. They would later work out that they were almost 30 miles from the farmhouse, and while half an hour had seemingly gone by, to them it appeared that they had arrived there in what seemed like an instant. They would turn their car around and head back in the direction of their original destination. They would eventually pass the barn, and, much to their confusion, the four strange triangular objects were no longer there. Both of them felt extremely unsettled, and each realized, at least in the back of their minds, that whatever had just happened was an echo of what they'd experienced in Colorado in 1982. Martin would also take statements from Ed to examine his version of these events. He would state the following. We were driving along the quiet road near the farm and barn when Denise pointed out several strange objects in the field. I turned and saw these strange shiny metal objects that came to a point. But within seconds of noticing them, I could suddenly see a sign for I-75 coming up in the distance. We were on a completely different stretch of road pulled over and tell Denise it just happened to us again it feels exactly the same as that night in Colorado Martin asked Ed if he'd agree to a hypnosis session to which he did and the alleged true events that happened in that missing time slowly came to the surface for Ed I see the shiny objects near the barn and everything is becoming dark all around us it feels it feels like we're in some kind of vacuum I turned to say something to Denise, and I realized she's not there. She's not in the car with me. I look out into the darkness, and there's this door opening. I see this tall figure, and it's carrying Denise in its long, skinny arms. Ed then recalled this being bringing Denise to the car and literally dropping her into the passenger seat. Before he could react, the being returned to the doorway, which then closed, placing Ed and Denise in darkness. The next thing he knew, he was on the road approaching Lake City. Martin would perform one last regression with Denise Stoner in relation to this 1992 event. She would pick up in the car just after the two saw the object in the field. I look over at Ed, and he's frozen to the steering wheel. I can't get his attention whatsoever. He's just frozen. And I see the tall being and the greys, the small ones. I'm floating, like there's no gravity. They're bringing me away and up, up into the craft. 
Another interesting detail was Denise Stoner's response to Martin, asking what had happened to the truck and where it had gone. They're sending it away somewhere, almost like it's in a bubble that has no weight. Like they are pushing it away. Shortly after noticing that she could no longer see the truck, Stoner saw the triangular craft in front of her and noted that she was being taken toward it. Martin then asked if she knew why they were taking her again. It has something to do with the thing in my head. The tall being is examining the part of my head that he had placed the staple gun-like device to the night before. As he talks to me in my mind again, it's telling me not to be afraid and that I'll be taken back soon. The next thing she realized, the car door was shut and the beings were gone. She would claim it was almost like a bubble popping. And then they were back on the road. And that's when they realized that they were going in the complete opposite direction. And that something truly strange had happened again. The work between Martin and Stoner continued. And as they dug deeper into her memories, it soon became clear, at least to them, that these experiences didn't begin in Colorado. They began when Stoner was a mere two and a half years old and living in Hartford, West Virginia. On one particular evening, Stoner's mother was in the hospital about to give birth to Stoner's sister, and she was being cared for by her grandfather. I'm looking out of a window at the house, and I see an egg-shaped object. I ask my grandfather why Humpty Dumpty was in the sky. Her grandfather suddenly had a look of fear wash over him as he noticed the object she had pointed out. And at this point, he seemingly changed the subject and informed her that it was her bedtime. However, this was just the start of the evening's strange and unsettling events. I'm lying in my room, and that's when I see it. There's this... thing. This being that appears. But it's not coming through a door. It's coming straight through the wall. This being was small. It was gray. It held a light of some sort in one hand and extended the other hand for Stoner to take it. I feel no fear. I take its hand and start to follow it out of my room and down the hallway. The being lifted the light it was carrying and pointed it directly at a wall in the hallway, walked toward the wall, and disappeared. The next thing I know, I'm inside a large, dome-shaped room, and there's a lot of other children around me. It appears as if these beings are teaching something to the other children. What they're teaching? I have no idea. Stoner's next memory is waking up in her bed the next morning, confused and terrified. And this was only the beginning, as Stoner would work with Martin to uncover many other experiences throughout her life with these beings. And perhaps it wasn't just she and Ed that these events had allegedly happened to She recalled that her grandfather, during the initial experience at age two, looked as though he knew what was happening, and had some sort of scared yet familiar sense of the craft outside the home. Another event of interest was around the same time, when Stoner was two years old, when she awoke one night to find that her baby's sister was not in her crib. This would seemingly happen on several occasions. When her parents began noticing that their daughter was missing from her bed in the middle of the night, assuming she was escaping her crib and wandering downstairs, her father placed a wooden fence of sorts around it using plywood. However, Stoner would recall that she knew this wouldn't work, as she had witnessed the tall being reaching into the crib and taking her sister with it. 
As her sister never seemed to come to any harm as a result of this, Stoner opted not to say anything to her parents. Another unsettling incident occurred several years later. Stoner would suddenly realize that instead of being in her bed at home, she was in a nearby park. When she looked around, she saw the tall being standing behind her. She noticed that it had a strange device that appeared to be attached to its arm. It appeared similar to an oil can with a tube at the end that dripped a strange liquid toward the ground. Stoner suddenly became scared and turned to run, but as she did so, she believed she saw the being's arm extending, almost reaching her shoulder. By the time she had run a short distance to the corner of the park, the figure was in pursuit. Even worse, the arm with the tube reached her ear, and she felt a drop of the liquid fall inside. As it did so, a voice appeared in her mind, telling her that they would be able to keep track of her now as she got older. The next thing Stoner realized, she was back in her bed once more, and the early morning sun was beginning to rise. Although she couldn't explain what had happened, she knew that it wasn't a dream. Martin would examine several more of Stoner's experiences in her book, The Alien Abduction Files, and would come to some intriguing conclusions. She would perform a questionnaire study of 50 people who claimed that they had similar experiences to Denise Stoner, and many of the details fit well with Stoner's version of events. For example, many believe that they have been subject to abductions since childhood and that the abductions have taken place regularly into adulthood. Similarly, many abductees, according to Martin's study, had been abducted when in the company of others, like a spouse, for example, and while they were largely unaware of what had taken place, they would often sense that something out of the ordinary had occurred. Again, many other claimed abductees could recall parts of the strange incidents, usually the beginning, and would often recall further details in dreams. And most could recall the majority of the encounters with the use of hypnosis. Even the details of the abductions can be found across many similar cases. The fact that some kind of examination had taken place, or that records of their examinations were maintained, and even that many of them were tracked can all be found in many other abduction cases. Perhaps another intriguing detail is that many abductees, including Denise Stoner, noted that electronic equipment in their homes would suddenly malfunction in the days following an experience. In a similar detail, abductees would also note that strange paranormal activity followed such encounters, such as shadow figures, light orbs, and strange noises. Some even reported that items around the house simply went missing. There have even been reports of sudden psychic abilities that are often reported, if only temporary. Martin would also note that both Denise and Ed Stoner were honest, grounded, hard-working individuals who are considered by all who know them as credible people of excellent character. What's more, neither were seeking fame or fortune as a result of their claims, and conducted their side of the investigation away from the public eye until the publication of their accounts with Kathleen Martin. For many UFO researchers, 
The Denise Stoner incidents are some of the most detailed alleged alien abduction cases on record. Many of the details offered in their accounts resonate nicely with others that are on record in the research files of multiple investigators and researchers. Perhaps not least, that many alien abductees are subjected to repeat abductions throughout their lives, as well as the fact that immediate family members of these abductees are often also found to have been regularly abducted, with some cases stretching across generations. After examining the Denise Stoner accounts, what can we truly make of the reasons why these abductions took place? It appears, for example, that a certain amount of tracking and record-keeping is taking place, hence the repeat abductions and procedures that make Stoner and other abductees recognizable to the intelligences behind the abductions. We also see a running pattern with those abducted being part of some kind of mass experimentation and monitoring operation. But to what ends? And if we are truly to ever come into contact with these captors on a mass scale, might we finally know the reasons they've done such traumatic things to humans? But perhaps even more importantly, if they can control us in the ways abductees claim, what will stop them from completely controlling us as an entire species? The answers to these incredible questions are unimaginable, just as the claims of Denise Stoner and many others are unimaginable as well. And once again, we find ourselves in the midst of compelling stories, but very little compelling evidence, save the highly controversial act of hypnosis having been conducted. And herein lay the most controversial aspect of the abduction phenomenon overall. How do you even begin to study something that refuses to rarely leave any physical imprint? How do you conduct an investigation when most of what is remembered was blacked out of the memory of the claimed abductee? And can we trust the memories that supposedly come to the surface? These are the understandable, inherent arguments by skeptics of the phenomenon, and one of those skeptics was John E. Mack. Mack was a psychiatrist and professor at Harvard. He was also a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. In 1994, he wrote a best-selling book titled Abduction, Human Encounters with Aliens. After looking heavily into the abduction phenomenon and interviewing those who claimed such experiences across a wide spectrum, he believed that most of them could not be explained by mental illness, sleep paralysis, seizures, or dreams, and that these individuals firmly believed these events happened to them. Mac spent years trying to unravel the mystery coming to the same frustrating fact that perhaps the answers wouldn't be revealed through psychiatry nor the sciences in general. We're dealing with a phenomenon which violates our sense of reality and which operates in this gray area between the physical world and the subjective or mythic or other realm world. Uh, we're being asked to uh, prove this by the methods of the physical sciences alone. But those methods, in my view, will not yield the, this will not yield its secrets. So here we are, even up until today, 
still questioning if the alien abduction phenomenon is actually happening or not. Especially for people like Denise and Ed Stoner. Either way, the experiences of the Stoners have become a part of UFO history, with the unfolding story continuing even up until today. And perhaps one day, Denise Stoner will find the answers to her questions somewhere in the skies. This episode was co-researched and written by Marcus Loth. To learn more, visit ufoinsight.com. Special thanks to Kathleen Martin and Denise Stoner. Much of the material in the making of this episode was inspired by their book, The Alien Abduction Files, the most startling cases of human-alien contact ever reported. Also, to our voiceover performers who contributed their time and talents to this episode, to Emily Tuckman and Jason McClellan. My special thanks to you both as well. You can learn more about Emily and Jason at the links in our show notes. If you haven't already, please take just a few moments to rate and review Somewhere in the Skies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Please also subscribe to our YouTube channel as well for special live streams, case files, and so much more. You can find us on Twitter at Somewhere Skies and on Instagram at Somewhere Skies Pod. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.